Welcome to University Showcase. I'm Megan Kamrak. Each year, the University of New Mexico recognizes a faculty member with its Community Engaged Research Lecture Award. We're joined today by Professor Jennifer Dinettdale from the American Studies Department. She's the first Diné person to earn a history PhD. She's a strong advocate for Native peoples and strives to foster academic excellence in the next generation of students interested in Indigenous studies. The title of her recent lecture is Building the Perfect Human to Invade, a Diné Feminist Analysis of the Pandemic and the Navajo Nation. I'm Jennifer Diné Dell. I'm Diné from the Navajo Nation. My home community is Tohatchi, and I'm a professor of American Studies at the University of New Mexico, and I'm also a historian. Thank you so much for talking with me. What inspired you to pursue your career and your research in academia? <laughs> you know, it's not, yeah, it's not like some kind of grandiose plan. I'm going to be a historian when I grow up. I come from the Navajo Nation. Public school education is, you know, not the best. And so I always consider that I have a, a pig-eared education. <laughs> a pig-eared? That's a great yeah. term. Yeah, that didn't prepare me for college, but I had parents who were committed to education. And so I always grew up with books around me. I had an, a BA in English, an MA in English, couldn't get a job. And then deciding on history, I learned in my late 20s that my great, great, great grandmother, um, who's known in the historical record as Juanita, was the wife of the 19th century war chief Manuelito. The Navajo people know him as which means man from black weeds. She had been known in her, by her Navajo name as Estante And so Tuga means weaver, and that's my maternal clan. So when I introduced myself in Diné, um, I named my mother's clan, my gra- which is my grandmother's clan, which is Weaver. In your lecture, as part of the award you got for community-engaged research, you talked a lot about the toll that COVID has had on the Navajo Nation. You, I think you said one in every 160 people on Navajo died. What is the scale of that impact? What does that mean for the future of citizens on Navajo? You know, I've been really interested in the stories that have been coming out um, since COVID hit in March of 2020. And so I've been paying attention to the stories and just, you know, I would get people who called me, relatives who called me, and then you would hear about the deaths. Um, And then, you know, on social media, Navajo people were also sharing their stories of, of the deaths that they were experiencing and there was multiple deaths in, in like for one in one family for example my sister who lives in Tohatchi she was driving from Tohatchi to to Gallup and in 25 miles there was three signs on the road turnoffs to Navajo homes and the sign was the announcement of a family accepting donations for funeral expenses you know three in a row mm. uh, just on that road and so the, you know, the stories about how devastating it is, uh, is what resonates with me. I had a relative early call me and she was working in one of the hospitals in Gala. And, you know, there was in June or July, or maybe it was April in 2020, 
when the doctors and nurses um, in one of the hospitals in Gallup were protesting the working conditions, you know, and their exposure to COVID, they went on strike. They were, you know, talking about how this was affecting them. And no one, of course, is talking about the largely Navajo workforce who do the everyday work of cleaning the rooms, the sanitation, the nurses' aides. They were like in those rooms all the time. And so there's no coverage of that, of Navajo people who were exposed on a daily basis. Um, and so I was interested in those stories. How did the pandemic present an even greater danger to women in the Navajo Nation? You know, women are the nurses, women are the, the ones who do the caretaking. And that caretaking is often not acknowledged, neither is it valued in, um, in our society, you know. And so women will be at the lower end of the hierarchy of this um, work scale, um, and they won't receive just compensation for the work that they put in uh, during COVID, for example. You know, they're also impacted with the businesses closing and they're, you know, what they, a lot of times they're the, the, the main provider to families. And so, you know, we've just seen like uh, a lot of how it impacts this disproportionately um, by gender. What did the coronavirus pandemic expose about the ongoing disparities and the legacies of colonialism in Navajo country? Nationally, it was immediately noted that communities of color were suffering some of the most disproportionately. And of course, indigenous communities and, and tribal nations were also suffering also um, disproportionately. And so having being a historian, I knew that the poor infrastructure on the Navajo Nation heavily contributed to what we were seeing in terms of the devastation and the disproportionate effects for the Navajo people and other indigenous uh, communities. We actually have this book out that I'm a, one of the authors and it's Red Nation Rising from Border Town Violence to Native, Native Liberation. And it's Nick Estes, Melanie K. Yazzie, Jennifer Nesdenet-Dell and David Correa. And it's actually the first book that takes up issues dealing with border towns. Okay, so Gallup is a border town. Farmington is a border town. Page, Arizona is a border town. These towns are established outside the boundary of the Navajo Nation. And we literally, Navajo people literally have to go into these towns just for the most basic necessities to live. That includes food, that includes transportation, uh, gas, water, clothing, material to build shelters, hay for livestock. Our land base has been diminished and our resources have been stolen to create uh, the urban Southwest. And so that's the historical structure of settler violence uh, that created the conditions for COVID to be so devastating on the Navajo Nation. Yeah, that was really interesting that you touched on. And I confess, I had not known about this federal policy in the 1930s, which your parents lived through, and yes. how it created these conditions. Talk a bit about that. In the 1930s, under um, U.S. Uh, Indian Commissioner John Collier, um, Navajos were forced to reduce their livestock by 50% under 
Collier's um, livestock reduction policies. And that really was a shift in Navajo life. Um, it was, for me, that was an important historical marker um, that led to the conditions um, that we see in the present. One of them being with the a shift in a, a self-sustaining economy that was based on livestock raising to reduce the, the livestock was devastating. It entered the wage economy. Even today, you have Navajo workers who depended on wage work who must move back and forth, travel back and forth between the border towns and urban spaces like Albuquerque, like Phoenix, like Gallup, like Page. I was just talking to, I have to call a, um, a person that I work with on the Navajo Human Rights Commission, and she travels 75 to 80 miles one way to go to work. And so those are the conditions of life on the Navajo Nation for many, many of my people. Those conditions were created with the livestock production of the late 1930s and 40s. And of course, so the livestock, you know, the more uh, self-sustaining way of life people like your parents had came out of after Navajos returned from the death march to Bosque Redondo. So they were gaining self-sufficiency again, and then it was kind of taken away. What was the stated reason for doing that? There'd been decades of concerns by um, non-Indians, federal officials, white reformers about the state of the land, you know, that there was environmental devastation. And they, you know, they said it was too many sheep and um, too many goats and too many horses. Um, but ultimately, I think one of the larger reasons was that there was concern that silt, because there was soil erosion, that the uh, topsoil was blowing away and it would clog up Hoover Dam. I think that was the larger concern. 1950s, when they began what they considered development, and development has many um, layers of meanings, um, was really also the beginning of more intensified resources extraction. And so those are the conditions that created what we're seeing with the effects of COVID. One of the other things that I saw that I thought was really amazing was that it was not only the Navajo Nation, but it was also other Indigenous nations who were really immediately following the CDC's guidelines. And so some of the, like here around Albuquerque, the Pueblo Nations, they shut down hard. <laughs> no one was allowed in and out of their communities um, and so our president, Jonathan Nez, also mandated curfews, weekend lockdowns. And then you could be driving to Gallup, but it was like a ghost town because hundreds of thousands of Navajos flood into these towns. You could see visually how these towns were dependent on the Navajo dollar. Mm. So because of the policies arising from the 30s, people, as you say, had to go into the wage economy. So now you have this paradigm where people have to travel many, many, many miles to go to jobs and work. And naturally, during a pandemic, not everyone could just stay home on the reservation. They had to go into work. So that what you're seeing is that facilitated the spread of COVID. You know, one of the first reports by Alyssa Pacenti, who's mm -hmm. a Navajo reporter with the Navajo Times, indicated that Navajo people had gone off Navajo, attended Christian gatherings, and then returned to the Navajo Nation. So it was in the northern side of uh, the western side of, of Navajo where the contagion spread. And so that movement back and forth is just necessary, you know, mm -hmm. because of the lack of a 
a viable infrastructure on the Navajo Nation. This is University Showcase. I'm Megan Kamrick, and I'm speaking with American Studies professor Jennifer Dinettdale. She is the recipient of this year's Community Engaged Research Lecture Award. I was struck by, in your lecture, when you talked about the Navajos hold a lot of water rights, and yet 30 to 40 percent of people on the reservation do not have running water, which was <laughs> in a pandemic where you're told to wash your hands all the time, really mm-hmm. deadly. Yeah, it's pretty incredible. <laughs> you know, you dr- you're driving on I-40 and um, you're going to Gallup and then you're going to Tohatchie and you visually and spatially you see the mark um, of how that deprivation, you can see it spatially. That was also striking to me. One of the other things that I'm working on right now, I'm the chair of the Navajo Nation Human Rights Commission. I'm the chair, my vice chair, Steve Darden, brought this to the table is our concern with that Navajo people are also dependent on outside uh, border town and city mortuaries and funeral homes for preparations of, of bodies. During the pandemic, it was just incredible that people would remark on the number of obituaries that were in the Navajo Times or the Gallup Independent. Um, there's a, a couple of radio stations, one in Farmington, a couple in Gallup, that reserve some time to read funeral notices. And one person remarked that one day the funeral notices took 40 minutes. Mm. Yeah, it's been pretty hard, you know. Um, and then on top of that, IHS, Indian Health Service, which is provides the health care for Navajo people, they were overwhelmed. I hesitate to criticize IHS because it's not the fault of the medical staff that they have such limited resources. But if before the pandemic, the hospital made um, decisions about quality of care, amount of care because of limited federal resources, then that was even more obvious during COVID because most of the beds were taken up by COVID patients. And, you know, people like relatives in Crown Point would remark on so would post on social media and say, you know, there's another helicopter that left the hospital. Patients were being sent to urban spaces um, like uh, Albuquerque and Phoenix and, and Flagstaff. How has the pandemic helped Navajo people also reaffirm cultural traditions and relationships? You had touched on that. One of the things that I paid attention to is that people mourn and are nostalgic about the time before the pandemic. For Navajo people, if that time has largely been one of deprivation, one of need, one of loss with the effects of the pandemic, then what exactly are we mourning? What are we nostalgic about? You know, um, I think that's a really good question uh, and raises the point about how capitalism works. Mm-hmm. You know? And so in the face of that, then there's also the need to come together, the need to remind ourselves about what's important. And so people have also pointed out to um, the places where we find comfort, the places where we remember once again, our kin relationships, you know, and so those have been through, I think, gift giving, offering of prayers for each other and with each other, the need and the concern about protecting our, our medicine people, for example, and our elders, And so I now am hearing about 
um, people who are now beginning to do ceremonies again or prayers again. You know, you'll have um, people saying, you know, we just did a Kinalda, which is the women's puberty right um, ceremony. And it's with the mandates in place with, you know, doing a Kinalda without your family is, it takes a lot more labor to do that. And then some of them have said, well, they just did a, a, a drive-by gift giving, you know, so people could drive up in their vehicle and pick up the gifts from the young woman, who, the Kinaldatha woman, mm-hmm. who, the young girl who'd become a woman. Um, and so I think the, those things have been really important to affirm our relationships with each other and the acknowledgement that care at a community level, at a kinship level, were um, reasserted and affirmed, I think. How do you base your scholarship in your community? Yesterday, I was talking to some of my colleagues at the University of New Mexico. They're all Native. And we were talking about the importance of community-based research and that that's what we want to support at the University of New Mexico and highlight and demonstrate how what is uh, community-based research. And so I mentioned earlier about the funeral industry and that this is a profit-making industry for border towns and cities and that so many Navajo people have died and you just have these bodies and bodies. And we did a report for the Navajo Nation Human Rights Commission. Navajos are pretty largely, I would say 95%, if not more than that, have become reliant on Western practices for preparing and moving bodies to their final resting place, you know. And so I think one of the things about COVID also for for me and for the commission is to get our people to start talking about and thinking about how do we return to traditional Navajo practices? Um, How do we disseminate education about concepts of death, um, Navajo concepts of afterlife and traditional burial practices? (laughs) This is a really hard topic for Navajo people. They just, it's hard to talk about. I think Howard has pointed out that this this is a much much needed dialogue and conversation. So we will be moving to begin talking about how we will do this, what our strategies will be, do that. So for me, that's an example of a community based research project. Mm-hmm. That's so interesting. It is. It's fast. I just you know. People won't talk about it, and then I'll mention it, and these um, Navajo people go, oh, well, have you read this, and what about this? I think it's three years now since the Human Rights Commission did its first, we did four education seminars on this topic, and, you know, Navajo people who came, this was all on the Navajo Nation uh, in different communities, they came and they wanted to talk about this, Hmm. you know? They were more interested in talking about what they went through, their experiences, than they were about Navajo concepts because we had a a traditional practitioner come, you know, and share in our own language. So it's going to be fascinating to start working on this project. Of course, now it's complicated because the Navajo Nation has recently changed its burial practices, Hmm. which is frustrating for um, Navajo people who we didn't notice these new policies coming down. (laughs) And then people you know, they're dealing with um, a funeral and then they find out these policies and they're outraged. Do you think that's going to make it more difficult to return to more traditional practices? 
Well, that's the one thing that I told the commissioners that we have to talk about, you know, because we, the Human Rights Commission um, is the only, the only entity in the Navajo Nation that deals with the concerns of Navajo citizens who don't live on the Navajo Nation, you know, and these are usually concerns or complaints of racism and discrimination. And so we regularly network with many other entities, including with other Navajo entities um, on the Navajo Nation. So we learn, we think about how do we network to get to um, a resolution. If you just joined us on KUNM, I'm Megan Kamrick, and this is University Showcase. I'm speaking with Professor Jennifer Dinettdale. She is this year's recipient of the Community Engaged Research Lecture Award. You also mentioned you're going to work perhaps with your grandson on a Navajo government textbook. What is that? Yes. Um, my grandson, he's graduating on, on um, Saturday from Las Lunas High School. And he's applying for the Chief Manuelito Scholarship, which is a very prestigious um, scholarship award from the Navajo Nation. And so he's looking at the requirements and he has to take Navajo government. So we shop around and we find one online and they're using a textbook um, probably published in the two th- maybe 2000s. Um, and I'm sitting at the table and we're tutor- I'm tutoring him and we're talking about Navajo government. And then I said, you know what? We need to just write another Navajo government textbook for high school age because this is like for college students. <laughs> and so he's like, okay, we can do that. So I announced it on social media on my Facebook platform that I'm going to do this. And it was really amazing, the, the support, the offering of help from Navajo people was really amazing. So I have contributors, I have people who want to be advisors and consultants on the project. So, you know, and I'm being realistic that this is going to take some time, this is not going to happen overnight. I was talking to a Dene, not Ani, a Navajo woman leader this weekend, and I told her that I would like to talk to her at some point about how to get the Navajo Nation to endorse this textbook. You know, so again, another community-based project that is intended to support Navajo young people. This is a textbook about how Navajo government structures work. Yeah, Mm -hmm. what young people should know about um, the workings of the Navajo government. So Navajo students have to learn that and they have to learn civics about the U.S. government. It's, it's made a difference that the Navajo Nation Scholarship Office uh, requires this, you know, like their standard, one of them is they have to have some high school credit for Navajo language, for Navajo government. Um, and so this forces the schools to offer these, you know, because they keep, they keep being asked for. And so I learned that the first years, this was years ago, when the scholarship office put this criteria in place, there was a lot of complaints and then there was like the parents going to the schools and say, you need to do this. My, my, my student needs this. You know, it's been good in terms of promoting the need for Diné language and for Diné studies. It just strikes me that <laughs> how much more prepared Navajo students are coming out. Like you not only have to understand the complicated structures of the Navajo Nation government, and then you've got to go be in the U.S. and understand those governmental structures. So... Mm-hmm. You're like twice as smart as 
yeah. <laughs> Anglo kids coming yeah. out. It's, you know, for me, what's important for young people to know and my own people to know and indigenous people to know is that um, we come from sovereign nations. You know, that should be foundational to everything you learn, that that's the space that you come from is acknowledgement and recognition of the sovereignty of indigenous nations um, and that we're always more than the domestic dependent relationship with the U.S. government. You also are releasing a book you mentioned with some co-authors here at UNM, Red Nation Rising. Can you yes. talk a bit about the focus of the book? This was a collaborative effort. We met in the border town of Flagstaff um, for a writing retreat. God, it was like three years ago, I think. Um, we're in a house together for a week and mapped out the book, and, you know, the graphs of, you know, what it was going to look like. And so we spent a week just writing. And then over the, the next two years, you know, we worked on it at our own pace. And finally, you know, we finally got, were able to submit a, a, a manuscript to PM Press. You know, it's the first book that deals with what Native and Dineh know about these spaces in border towns, you know, um, a place like Gallup, 70 cents of every Navajo dollar mm -hmm. um, so, uh, goes into the border town of Gallup, mm -hmm. you know, and that tells you just how dependent we are on these towns, but also how these towns also, their livelihood depends on the Navajo people. There's a lot of um, inequality and injustices in these towns and the way that townspeople um, relate to the Navajo people. This is structural. My great, great, great grandparents at the end of the 19th century were going into Gallup for supplies. My great, great grandmother and my great, great grandfather had good Indian passes. You know, they had good had these, Indian passes. Yeah, they had these letters written by the Indian agent saying, you know, let this Indian pass. Um, he's the son in law of Chief Manuelito and Juanita. He's a good Indian. You're like, why do you need a letter like that? Like, well, that sounds like the passes they had in apartheid in South Africa. Yeah. And we're actually talking about this se these separations, these kinds of conditions in these border towns. You know, I'm 63 years old now, and I've lived my whole life as my parents did going to and from these border towns, the closest one being Gallup. And I can tell you that I might know three people who live in Gallup. There's a separation of the townspeople from the Navajo people, you know, and they might come together like during the Gallup ceremonial so that they can exploit um, Navajo culture and, uh, you know, for their own benefit. And so those are the conditions of these border towns. And those are some of the things that we talk about. Um, was it 20, I forgot what, several years ago here in Albuquerque, there was the, the murders, the torture and mutilation uh, leading to death of Keith Thompson and mm -hmm. Allison Gorman, mm -hmm. you know, and that was also the inspiration for this book is to lay bare those structures of violence that these spaces, these urban spaces and these border towns are actually violent spaces for indigenous people and for the um, and so, you know, we lay that out um, very clearly. And I, we hope that it's helpful in terms of naming what these structures are and what they look like. And that these are not just in, um, episodes, you know, individual episodes, but there's it's structural. It's part of, of how settler colonialism works. Well, Professor Jennifer Dennett-Dale, it doesn't sound like you're slowing down anytime soon. <laughs> Thank you. I'm just like, I, I'm trying to fix up my yard, my backyard, because I love sitting in the backyard. Um, 
And I'm like, I just want to do this. And then I think about all these other projects and things that I want to do. And then my grandson is going to UNM, mm-hmm. you know, and I'm just very proud of him that he's he's going to be a third generation college graduate when he gets done. So he's excited about that. And I'm excited about that. Um, and then how, you know, how I can help him and support him. Well, this has been really interesting. I, ta- I appreciate you taking time to talk with us. <laughs> Good to talk to you. That was American Studies professor Jennifer Donette Dale. You can find a link to the talk she gave for the Community Engaged Research Lecture Award, Building the Perfect Human to Invade, a Diné Feminist Analysis of the Pandemic in the Navajo Nation. That's at KUNM.org. That's where you can also find this interview and all our previous interviews. Thanks to Associate Professor David Bashwinner for our theme music. I'm Megan Kamrick. Thanks for listening to University Showcase. Mm-hmm.